This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hey guys, I'm Nick Nanavati from the Art of War podcast. And you're listening to another episode where I'm joined today by John. I'm here. And we have a special guest today, uh, Innes, who's a Team Scotland ETC member. Say hi, Innes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And Innes, you recently did pretty well in the LGT Invitational uh, Space Marines, right? And then I think you went undefeated in the LGT proper. Is that correct? Yep. So I went to the round of eight in the Invitationals, losing to Josh Death in the oh God quarterfinals. And then I went 5-0 and and came fourth in the main event, which was really great. That's awesome. Awesome. So uh, what army did you play over there in the LGT? So I was playing a mono White Scar Space Marine list. Uh, so I had the usual combination of characters, some Smash Captains, a Chaplain, a, a Librarian, a Lieutenant, and then the spicy um, Phobos Captain. Uh, and then I had 45 troops of varying degrees, so 20 Intercessors, 25 Scouts, 6 Aggressors, a Thunderfire Cannon, 2 Whirlwinds and nine eliminators and i think that's it because space marines are expensive wow so um i gotta ask everyone else is like really hyped up right now um about i mean iron hands weren't legal for this event so let's not talk about them but everyone was priorly hyped about ultramarines why were you not running ultramarines so my basic thoughts on that is anybody can play a gunline army you can stand and shoot at 18 inches with aggressors as much as you like you've got to be pretty good to get into combo with them and do the same amount of damage so i was like if I were going to express some skill in the game and do better than people, especially at a big event like this, um, you've got to be winning your games pretty decently in order to have a chance of coming up the top. So I wanted lists that could go in and properly do some damage with some proper combat skill mechanics. I couldn't agree more. So uh, this is actually something I teach all the time in Knights of the Game Table Pro. Basically, the concept here is if you're on an ultimate gun line, yeah, mathematically, it's a stronger army. Like, here's my guns. They shoot really hard. Moving, shooting aggressors, all that jazz. When you run into something that also shoots really hard, let's say Eldar Flyers, Tau, or even the Ultramarine Mirror, it's going to come down to essentially who has first turn, who rolls better, like what deployment style it is. Those external factors you just simply can't control. So what you did was you answered that by saying, I'm going to focus on getting to you in assault, bypassing your ridiculous shooting phase, and then leveraging play skill to carry me through the game. I really love that choice. Yeah, that's pretty much the case. If I can do better than you in combat, I'm going to win the game. If I can't, I deserve to lose. So were you never concerned with getting into combat with your list? So White Scars have this really great rule called Advance and Charge, and so many, so many ways to make it better. Uh, so you've got things like the Plume of the Plane Runner, which is a plus one Advance and Charge relic, the Chaplain Aura for plus two to charge, and then also uh, Right the Wind Psychic Power for an additional plus two to Advance and Charge. And then you've also got the uh, Deep Striking natively and all the Jump Pack characters, and the encirclement stratagem to do outflanking. So you have so many ways to get to combat. If you can't leverage at least one or two of them, um, something's probably either gone wrong in your deployment or 
your play on the first couple of turns or the terrain on the boards, which isn't really your control. But at LGT, we had standardized boards. I knew there was a decent chance I could use the little L's in the middle to control the board. Awesome. One of the things that strikes me about your, your list is um, it's very troop heavy. Like more, I, I, Space Marines use strategy, like you could spend an unlimited number of points on Space Marine stratagems, I get it. But did you find that you were missing some of those more specialized Space Marine units? Because your list is almost exclusively troops and characters, right? Yeah, so I have 45 troops. Um, so with the 20 intercessors, they kind of fill the role of elite, what elites do in other armies. Because they're two-win models with functionally three attacks each in combat, you kind of get the the best of both worlds. Like Most other armies' elite troops don't fight that well, especially in turn three onwards with White Scars getting plus one damage. Um, so I didn't really find that I was missing it because the damage I put them on is just so high, and they give you the board control that you need to get the most out of your characters. And then obviously, yeah, 18 CPs means you've got things like turns where you can go in and spend 10 CP in a turn to try and kill a couple of knights and break break the back of the game wide open. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. Um, the Space Marines feel it probably more than most other armies, the trade-off between CP and power units. Um, a lot of people with White Scars definitely value things like Assault Centurions so they can advance and charge and still shoot for a CP and move plus two or plus three and all that jazz. Um, you seem to fill that role with aggressors, but you never had any Vanguard Vets or Assault Termies or other units that are commonly seen in theoretical White Scars list. Did you find you're missing power at that point? I, I really didn't because the aggressors just do everything so well. They were definitely like the linchpin unit of the army. It was kind of, I built the army around them and the Eliminators because I kind of singled them on as being some of the best units in the Codex. Uh, I'll confess to not owning Vanguard Veterans, uh, which is part of the reason I never really looked at them in depth. Um, so as a whole, it was kind of, because the, the aggressors play every phase of the game really well, they move, they advance, they shoot, they charge back in, and then you've got white scar stratagems that let you fall back and shoot and then natively fall back and charge. So as long as you can keep them alive, you're never lacking power. Uh, so for example, in one of my games, um, I brought them in on turn three, pulled a wrap against some war walkers, and then they basically walk through 800 points of an elder army over three turns between just walking in, fighting, killing something, shooting, charging into something else, wrapping something else, and just doing that over three turns. Um, so the power was never really lacking. It's just surviving until turn two or three to leverage it properly. Right. And you know, you, you basically know you can survive to that long because you know the LGT terrain, right? Yeah. So because between um, the indirect fire from the Wyverns and the Thunderfire Cannons, it's always going to be off to a side. Uh, sorry, Whirlwinds and Thunderfire Cannons. It's always going to be off to a side that's just in a really unappealing place for people to go to. And then the general survivability of Primaris Marines and Scouts that are just completely hiding. Um, because they, And then also the threat range of characters. So if I leave sort of one Smash Captain in the middle L protected by 25 Scouts, most armies aren't going to have the ability to get through five individual units on three-up saves to get to the Captain. And he projects a 30-inch range of you don't want heavy hitters nearby. So that just kind of means that my units will survive long enough to do their damage in the later turns. Interesting. And I guess you're not too concerned with like someone running up and wrapping your scouts in close combat because you obviously are white scars and can just punch your way right through that problem. Is that correct? Yeah. So if they're gonna Yeah, so if you're gonna try and run up and wrap me with ten guardsmen, I mean, first of all, I'm gonna kill those ten guardsmen. Um and then it's something for me to wrap back if I need to. I'm thinking more like someone like thirty orcs, which are just like you know, they'll kill scouts and wrap five more and not thinking about it. Yeah, sure. So that's where the Eliminators and the Primaris Captain come in with the no deep strike aura and the moving after Overwatch. Um, that kind of lets you 
it's it's sort of a different matchup, right? You're against those armies, you're not going to control the center of the board. You're going to push up, try and shoot them at a distance, but never really be in range, and then use the 15-inch no-deep strike aura on the captain. Obviously, not legal post-FAQ, but it was for this event, to just say, you're not coming in here. And then also, um, tremor shells off of the Thunderfire cannons to control the ability for them to charge out of the jump, uh, or even just running across the board at you, because they're not going to make a 17-inch charge out of, over, out of reserve. It's just not possible. Yeah, I don't want to get too lost in the orc matchup because that's kind of something we're going to save for part two. Sure. Yeah. But um, can you talk about what role the Eliminators and the Phobos Captain played in your list? I see a lot of people talking about uh, Ultramarines Eliminators with Redeploy or Iron Hands Eliminators that minus two and the ignores native re-rolling ones innately. Um, what's the why White Scars Eliminators? Like you want to be rushing to Assault Doctrine, so not going to get Devastated Doctrine past turn one. You don't really have a traits that benefit them or strats that benefit them what's the purpose so yeah my basic thinking with them was they were great before the codex when they were strength four and they went to strength five i I don't need anything else on them they're 222 points on my list that exist to kill characters and to stop people charging me Uh, i don't need them to be white scars i don't need them to be iron hands they just need to be themselves the fact that i can throw them into combat on turn three and have 10 attacks at two damage is a nice bonus and they can fall back and shoot if I really need it as well. Yeah, for a CP. And you have 18. So um, what kind of characters would you often hunt for them? So like, let's say you're playing against uh, a similar type Space Marine army, because you got a bit of everything with like support librarians, Smash Chaplain, or, or support Chaplain, whatever you want. So yeah, against armies that are going to be hiding their characters out of line of sight, you're tending to go for the, I'm going to say, lower impact characters. So you're going to send them after the Primaris Psychers, the Librarians that don't have the Invulnerable saves, because the Ignore's line of sight shots are obviously only AP minus one. Uh, minus two in the Devastator Doctrine, which is when you'll get the most work out of them. And then after that, you can kind of switch to the characters that have involves because at that point, you're not caring. You're only minus one. Um, if you've got them in line of sight of stuff, you're going to send them after the high impact stuff. So if you can get the D3 damage rounds onto things like um, work, uh, shock attack guns, smash captains, um, the homunculus and the dark elder matchup, things like that, where you remove a lot of power with them, you can do that, but it forces them to hide them as well. So you're basically just using them for again. It's the whole it's the whole thing about having board control through the center of the game until you can get to the point where you turn online at turn three and then going explosive. It's just making sure that they've got to spend two turns killing the eliminators before they bring their characters out to play. Gotcha. And were you ever concerned about like your eliminators being too far forward and getting charged? Because I'm, I'm looking at it from my opponent's perspective, right? If you have uh, 36 inch range on the eliminators, the only way they're going to get in range of my characters is if I put myself like all the way back in my far board edge on my corners, like where I can just be a supporting character in my backfield, um, is if you're really close to my front lines to have range them. If you do that, though, you're very much in danger of just being shot off the board or if you're behind line of sight, just being charged. How did you find the balancing act? So the, the balancing act there comes with LGT's specific mission pack with there not being seize rolls. I always know if I'm going first, if I'm deploying them aggressively. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm not deploying them aggressively. Just to clarify for those of you guys listening, LGT made it so you deploy your army and you're going first, or you're deploying your army and you're going second. Um, you knew that when you're deploying your army, so there's no alternating deployment and then someone wins the role and that person goes first or second. You know when you're deploying if you're going first or second. Yep, and there's also no seize rule, which is right. very big for that as well. So yeah, when I when I knew I was going first, which I think I did in most of my games because the two GSC opponents I played gave me first turn, uh, and then barring that, it was just so you you were kind of if you deploy them aggressively, 
against armies with charge presence, you can put um, with the sergeant with the moving after you overwatch gun, you can sort of put him at the top and then put them on the ruins. And then when you overwatch, they just move six inches directly up and it's going to add a decent amount to their charge distances. You can also protect them with sort of things like filling the row, filling the floor below them with scouts so that even if they charge in, they've got to go through a layer of scouts that are punching back quite hard before they get that. And you'll generally get two turns of fire out of them that way, which is normally enough for them to do their job. That's interesting. I find it I find it fascinating that um, your list is just basically a sea of marine bodies that uh, uh, some of which advanced deploy or I guess concealed positions, and um, you're kind of playing a board control list with a marine army, which is not something that I've seen uh, probably ever. To be honest with you, yeah, that that really does feel like how it plays out because obviously white scars not getting their ability till the assault doctrine and not having any way to advance it like. The- like the Ultramarines do being able to put themselves in tactical doctrine a turn early for one unit. Um, you kind of have to play in this game where you're like, you're kind of playing check-in with your opponent. You're saying, can you do enough damage to me before my entire army turns online? And can I do enough damage to you that even if you do damage to me, it doesn't matter? Um, and it pr- pr- kind of creates this really weird dynamic where I brought a lot of advanced deploys. So I had the Phobos Captain, the three squads and the, uh, three Eliminators, and then also 25 Scouts. So because the only armies in the game that really have opposing advanced deploy are Nurglings and other Space Marines, you get the center of the board incredibly easy with Space Marines at the moment. Um, so you can also do the same thing with things like Invicta Warsuits, where you just you control the middle of the board against almost every army. And it just gives you so much time, because scouts out of line of sight are hard to kill unless you're Tau, and Eliminators are a one-up saving cover. Most units aren't killing them with shooting, but easily at least. And at the same time, you're happy if they're shooting them because they're a 72-point squad. So out of curiosity, is that one of the reasons why you put the Eliminators sort of in the game to sort of slow the pace of the game down? If you can stop your opponent from putting his characters where he wants them, maybe it takes him a turn longer to to enact his plan. And even just slowing them down a little bit uh, allows you to get into that assault doctrine. Is that sort of the... Yeah, exactly. So if people are putting characters in less than useful positions to not die to eliminators. They're doing their job without even shooting. You don't need to be killing the sloppy ball piper. You just need to make him so his aura is coming from the back of the board. So there's 10 less plate bearers because they're having to chain to you. Um, it's it's all about control, right? You're just trying to stop your opponent playing their game plan and eliminators are great for that. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So like when someone says, yeah, I'll make the character hide behind a wall or I'll make him sit really far back. I'm thinking to myself, if it's a librarian who can cast out a line of sight or whatever the psycho version of it is, or something like Sloppity Biopiper, who just needs to give an aura to be good, what's the problem with chaining back? And you're saying chaining back is a net win for you because it's just 10 less guys you're fighting. Like it just, it lets you control the middle that much more and it gets late game. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that comes up with it with like intense chaining, so if they say things like 30 Termagants, 30 York Boys, if they're chaining back and they stay there, they're not moving. Right, if they're especially if you're pulling casualties off of them and they're trying to stay in aura range but also stay in threat range, they're then not moving. They're wrapping. They're not. You can do things like charging them on the end so that only one guy's and one guy's attacking you back because they can't pile in. Yeah, any time that your opponent's presenting less models, especially with an army that's got as much as it's a marine horde, I had less than eighty models. Uh, I'm playing against people who've got that in their troop in their mandatory troops for a battalion, right? So anything that's making me fight less models is letting my Marines trade up. Yeah, um, for those of you who didn't follow on that, because that's some really high-level insight from Ines, so thank you. Um, basically, a unit can only pile in or consolidate if it can still maintain coherency with itself, um, while every model must move closer to the closest enemy model. So you have like 30 Tormagants, uh, kind of like Eric Lathurus in our last episode with the 
or a couple episodes ago with all the termagants trailed back in like tentacle octopus formation. And like a bunch of those termagants die, but Eric wants to maintain auras and then a hormigon on this objective here and a termagant on that objective there. For them to be able to move or pile in, it can get really, really hairy for him really fast. So Ines is almost trying to take advantage of that with having them forcing characters so far back to create the octopus to go even further far back for all that stuff. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, no, that, that made total sense. And and if I could summarize your game plan, it sounds to me like you're trying to slow the game down by a turn. Because a lot of times, a lot of stuff happens in turn one and turn two. And if you can make your opponent hesitate just a little bit so that you can get into that assault doctrine on turn three, that's when your army turns on and becomes extremely dangerous. So even deploying 25 scouts forward or deploying your eliminators um, in forward positions, um, if it makes your opponent slow the roll a little bit, it just helps you get to that phase where you're just going to drop the hammer, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially since nobody wants to be the one that runs in, right? So I put 25 scouts in the middle of the board, you throw a knight at them, it's going to get charged by a smash captain on the board next turn. Um, there's no good way to deal with it. So you either put yourself in a compromising position to deal with 30 models at a line of sight that you have to come forward to kill, or you don't kill them. I'm happy with either situation. Or I suppose you're even happy if they stand back and shoot them for a turn, right? You know, yeah, if they're shooting them through a wall, they're firing, what, three irons? Yeah. yeah. Nine mortars or whatever, right? It's not enough. I guess that, that does beg the question, though. This is all um, kind of built around the idea that you know you're going first and there's no seize roll. How would a seize roll or even some alternating deployment like an American tournament affect this type of list style? So alternating deployment... Um, I'm not 100% sure has that big an impact. In that kind of situation, I just assume I'm going second because I have 22 drops in my list. And then I kind of just play more cagey, right? So I put the Eliminators on the second floor of the building where they're not going to get shot and I can just fire the indirect rounds or move them up to get shots on the second turn. Uh, the scouts kind of sit off the floor. You're just you're still trying to play the board control game. You're just expecting to lose the models instead of maybe getting to use them. But because I'm never, I was never pushing aggressively on turn one anyway if I was going first, uh, except against like horde armies where I could push out and do a lot of damage with the bolt guns, I'm just kind of sitting there and expecting to take my licks for a turn before I turn on light. So it just pushes it back, but then I get bottom a turn. Gotcha. So what, how would a, a seize roll potentially impact it? Like Even if you, like an ETC style, you think you're going first, there's a five out of six chance you're going first, but you know there's that one six possibility. How would you cope with that? Yeah. So at the ETC, I'm asking my coach if I need to push or if I need to be careful, right? So I'm saying, what kind of matchup am I in? Am I in a matchup where I need 10 points, a matchup where I need 20 points in an ETC system? If I need 20 points, I'm probably just going going for it. I'll deploy as if I'm not as if it's impossible to get seized on. If I need the 10 points, the 12 points, then I'll go for the KG deployment, even if I could go first. And then I'll but I'll leave it so that there is opportunities to capitalize. So things like the um the Lord of Deceit Warlord trait on the Phobos Captain to redeploy the three eliminator squads means that I can be a little more aggressive with them if I want to. because um, you can obviously take that with Hero of the Chapter, depending on what you're playing against. So yeah, you're kind of you're like in that situation where sure you're gonna hedge your bets, but you don't have to, right? You can sometimes play a little bit looser if you have the decent odds of going first. Yeah. I think um, a lot of people don't factor in the Caesar roll. A lot of like not top tournament players don't factor in the Caesar roll. If they think, oh, there's a five, six chance I'm going first, I'm going to deploy on the line, and oh no, I lost the season. It's so easy to blame Dice in that position. Like, I was going to win, but he seized. 
Yeah, the question that comes up is, did you need to deploy that you could get exactly. Seizon to lose? Or could you have just deployed KG in one anyway? Because that's how you actually get the consistency of your wins. If you think about it, even if you win the roll to go first six out of six times in a six-round event, you're going to mathematically be seized on at least once. So, Unless you're Manichima. Yeah, they're brown magic. And, you know, if he does that, or if someone seizes, in a, you know, you didn't actually get unlucky there at all. You just didn't understand where the math came from. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's like it's that whole thing where you want to win the game on turn two so you can go to the bar, right? It's just good thinking. But you don't have to win the game on turn two. Winning the game on turn six is still a win. Yeah. And you'll see a lot of the top players we bring on here at the Art of War, they all talk about playing a six-turn game, not a two-turn game. That's a very common thing that we kind of bring up here. And that playing the long game is how you don't lose to dice early on by going for those Hail Mary plays when you don't need to. Yeah, in the long run, your dice will average out. Yeah. You know, um, in looking at your list, another thing, another thought occurs to me, and I kind of want to get your input on this. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times, because of the way the meta is, people have to have some sort of dedicated anti-tank presence. And there's just nothing good for them to shoot at except for the aggressors, and you're going to hide those, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, like, you're sort of denying your opponent good usage out of, like, you know, a thermal cannon on a knight or something because they're just going to kill a few intercessors with it. Like, Yeah, exactly. That comes that comes a lot from the, the ETC mentality where you can build super skew lists where you can just say, if you don't have enough anti-horde to kill my 200 gaunts or you don't have enough anti-tank to kill nine impulsors going for a slightly more different build, um, you're just putting stress on your opponent. You're stress testing their lists. If they've built an all-comers list, which you're going to want to do in a, in a singles event, you're saying... Can you de can you beat me? And if you can't, you're just stat checking them. And for a list that's pretty much an all comers list, which is what mine is, for that to be able to also stat check people is quite nice. Um, it does make for very interesting scenarios, especially since the only I tank is the whirlwinds, which are out of line of sight most of the game. Yeah, that's I guess that that was I was sort of assuming. How many whirlwinds are in the list? Is it two? Just two. Yeah, just two regular ones with the um, strength seven minus one two damage shots. Yeah, did you consider maybe replacing those two with one Scorpius? So the Scorpius is 215 points, so I'd need to free up 45 points from the list, which isn't actually that easy. It would be kind of probably moving down to double battalion. Um, and just as, as a personal thing, I try to avoid using four drill just because of ETC practice. I realize that's 11 months away now, but it's still something that always kind of comes up when you're thinking about it. That makes total sense, yeah. So your list, your, part of your list design... Um, you were designing this to play in ETC as well as ITC events that are there. So you don't want to crutch on a Forge World model when you can't use it. For yeah, uh, it's more about, like, I don't want to become dependent on it, right? You don't want to find that you're only winning if you're trying to practice for winning and winning without it in 11 months' time. Yeah, we've actually had a problem with that in America where people, back when we used to have a qualification system that kind of just took the made a team based on how they won events. We had one or two guys who qualified for the team using almost entirely forged armies. And like, of course they're still good at the game. You can't win. You can't qualify for team America without being good for the, but at least decent at the game. And then, um, but when push came to shove, they came over to Europe and didn't have any forged and their list building just was not up to par all of a sudden. So I definitely respect that choice is my point. But anyways, how do you, how do you think your list, Fair is between the two formats, ETC and ITC. 
Um, so the list was the list, like I said, the list was written for ETC format. This was just what I was thinking of taking, uh, and then it happened that the next, the first event I was going to was LGT, and I kind of I didn't just wholesale copy it. I kind of looked at it and was like, what elements of this are going to work in the ITC rules pack? So I don't have any units that give up gangbusters for full points. I don't have enough vehicles for Mark for Death, uh, for Mark for Death or Big Game Hunter. I only have one unit with power level seven or higher. So I kind of like. It ended up being what I wanted to run anyway, but it fit really well into that TC secondary system. Um, so I don't think I would change too much. Uh, obviously, with the FAQ having removed the ability to have the 15-inch no deep strike aura on the Phobos captain, changes kind of show up there. And also for team events, you can kind of get away with as much of the anti-overwatch or anti-charge things as I've got. So the Phobos captain for the 15-inch denial on things like Zangor and Orcs to jumping, and then also the moving after you overwatch on the Eliminators. I can kind of shy away from that when I'm playing for singles or when I'm playing for teams because I can just avoid those matchups, right? So that's kind of how it changes the ETC system. Interesting. So, but you weren't concerned about having like so many crappy units of scouts and whatnot, giving up kill more almost every turn, giving up Butcher's Bill for most of the game. Any of that bite you in the butt? So, Butcher's Bill was actually surprisingly like every, I think every single person I played against took it against me, but I don't think everybody maxed it because in the early turns, the scouts are providing such a threat. So, if I throw 25 scouts onto you turn one, you're probably going to try and kill all five squads because if you don't, they're going to do damage. So, you end up taking all your easy kills really early. So you'll see people, you'd see like the night list getting eight kills on turn one and then two on turn three and then one and then they're out of models. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a lot of butcher's build points. It's a lot of kill mores, but they tend to come very explosively. Uh, and then the Primaris Marines are more resilient than they look. So you would tend, I would often have like one or two guys from a squad running around, hiding behind a wall, grabbing an objective late game, that kind of thing, right? Where, yeah, sure, they take that, but they are two tactical squads for most people, and it's not that easy to kill a tactical squad in cover. Yeah, especially if they're not trying to be assholes and just you know run forward. Like long distance backfield and intercessors are actually really annoying to try to remove. That's an interesting point, though, with uh, having you know you have your five squads of scouts, and people look at that like oh, two scout squads per turn. I'll kill that for the first two turns. Turn three, I'll kill one scout squad, and like something, a character, or five intercessors, whatever, and I'll get Butcher's Bill every turn, kill more every turn, easy times. But you're right, when you're throwing your army at your opponent like that, he does have to deal with it, and then, you know, turn one, two, we might probably get to kill more Butcher's Bill, and then it stops, because what is he going to kill after that? And that's when your army turns on, too, so all of a sudden you're doing crazy amounts of damage, and he's out of stuff to kill. It's kind of a very nasty combo where you lose in the early game to crush the end game, is that right? Yeah, and there's also the other thing of if they are going to leave the scout squads, then if there's if I've still got a couple of scout squads left on turn three, they're twelve or twelve or sixteen two damage attacks, right? You don't want to leave it. So I'm kind of like putting them in that win-win situation where if you try to farm it for Butcher's Bill, you're just going to get punched by it. And that's part of the beauty of the white scars, isn't it? It's the the fact that everything, even a five-man scout squad with close combat weapons, that's 17 attacks, minus one AP, two damage, just if it survives to turn three. Everything becomes an enormous threat. Yeah, I mean, even just stuff like two whirlwinds charging in will get one or two hits through with eight attacks that are two damage. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's crazy when you bring it like that, like whirlwinds yeah. charging in. There are, there are characters that are punching with less effective attacks than that. That's <laughs> what are whirlwinds, like seven minus six, seven minus one, two? Right, yeah. And then if you've got chapter master rerolls in there, like, you know, you're not complaining if you're getting damage out of them. Yeah, the funny thing about the whirlwinds, too, is they can, they can fall back and charge again. Or 
uh, fall back. I mean, you could even spend a CP to shoot shoot one if you wanted to, right? So, yeah, one of the one of the things I've always loved doing with my whirlwinds. And that's a great point, John. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, if they don't have like crappy troops to go shoot at or whatever, I often just use them as character screens towards the later half of the game, or just bumping into stuff to annoy it, um, charging it so it has to fall back and not be able to shoot. Yep. Whirlwinds are movement twelve with advance and charge. Yeah. So you found yourself doing that kind of maneuver a lot? Yeah, it's stuff like tagging play bears on the end of squads, tagging orc boys so they've got to jump them out, that kind of thing can be really annoying for people to deal with. Also, they're a pretty good thing to absorb in Overwatch, right? You're just like, I want to charge these scout squads into whatever, but I charge you with my Yeah, absorbing Overwatch and absorbing Smite, the other big one for them. Yeah, especially um, you had enough librarians where you could very easily cast Psychic Fortress on something. One of yeah, my I only favorite had, things. I actually only had one librarian in this list. It is something that came up. Oh, you did? I thought you had two. Second. Um, yeah. But even still, you have that the trait armor of con- or not trait stratagem armor. Yeah, the five of the pain. Yeah. yeah. For so armor of contempt. Very much just take a whirlwind and drive up into a gas one and say, smite this, and it won't even die. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't die to what you need to do like 17 mortal wounds to kill it, yeah, decent yeah. odds you don't manage that. It depends on the chaos list too, like how many psychers do they actually bring and what other powers they have to cast. Yeah, and I mean, I also don't want them to wrap it with plate bearers. Well, so. do you actually mind if they're? I mean, turn one, I'm sure you mind because you're not your army hasn't turned on. But I imagine by turn three, you're fine just charging in with everything with damage too, bypassing the pain. Yeah, I think I have something in the region of a hundred attack, hundred and twenty attacks for my troop choices that are two damage in yeah, combat. With so, full rerolls to hit, so they're you're not rerolling, even if they're minus two for being plate bearers. Fives with full rerolls above fifty percent hit rate. Yep, like that's not bad at all. Yeah, in my first game of the invitation, I killed two hundred and thirty odd in five turns. That's insane. So, <laughs> how how did you manage that? I know we just talked about how insane you had to you have null zone for that. Tell me, you use null zone? Yeah, I had null zone. Of course, I had null zone. Okay, I was, I was like, <laughs> I was like, how the hell does that happen? <laughs> yeah. Um. So one squad died to just charging the aggressors with uh, the five up Overwatch rerolls. And then the rest just kind of got ground away at. And then Null Zone, I think I killed three squads on turn five with Null Zone. You'll actually straight up kill 30 play bears with the aggressors on Overwatch. 21 and then eight in combat. And I guess when when I say in Overwatch, you're Overwatching on fives with full rerolls. That's, that's just actually, a shooting phase, yep. That's actually just a shooting phase. And yeah. they're double tapping on Overwatch at all times now. That's insane. Yeah. I remember that came up in our game where I stared at you with like three guard squads and a patriarch, and you were like, Nick, I overwatch on Fizer Full Reels. Like, I know, I know I can't charge you. I just really want to. <laughs> Did you ever find that um, with your aggressors while we're on the subject, you know, you would keep them, you'd use them to get in combat and kind of steamroll the lap back half the game as your big heavy hitter unit? Um, did you ever find that if someone could just countercharge and kill them, that was a big problem? Like maybe you fight another Marine army, they wrap up on some scouts after shooting a bunch, and then a smash captain just goes and clears them out, or anything similar so like that happens? It's actually really hard to just one-shot a squad of aggressors, especially with um, transhuman. So if any are anything that's relying on its strength to do damage, like a smash captain, aberrants, you can just kind of say, okay, you're going to win with the most half. Most characters, you're looking five attacks, four hits, um, which is then two wounds, odds you pass a save, like, it's not going to kill them. Like, if you kill one, I've got five left. They'll kill you back, and then we're back to playing the game. I mean, I shot them with eight last cans, and three rolled a wound, and nothing happened. Uh, you killed one. I killed one, I'm sorry. No, you did two, you did two wounds to one. The, the uh, Aberrants killed one. Great. <laughs> they're not easy to kill, is basically what it comes down to. If you're willing to sink the CP into them, they're not easy to kill, especially in cover. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you have 18 CP, right? So transhuman becomes a really th- thing you can use every turn if you want to. Yeah, I think I used it like five times when I giving it snack. Yeah, you did. Use it in your own turn. Yeah, that's, that's actually a real strength of your list. Because, like I said, Space Marines have like a lot of really cool stratagems, but it's hard to get enough like raw power in the list and CPs at the same time, and you've really done... Yeah, there's, there's six pages of them. Yeah, and you've Six really, pages of stratagems. Yeah, and you've really married those two things. You have a lot of CPs, and because of the White Scar's uh, doctrine trait in, in the Assault Doctrine... Um, you have a lot of power. You have a lot of raw power too, which is yeah. It's the the question I was kind of asking was how do I get eighteen and make my troops useful? And the answer is white scars. Yeah, when I was I've been writing a lot of space marine lists for me and my clients over on Knights Pro, and I find a lot of them are going to single battalion because I just find the troops so taxi. And I'm like, you're just you're. They have a lot of cool toys. They have assault centurions. They have aggressors. They have uh, grab devastators and a pod. I'm like, you're going to get to use one of these units for like one turn, and then you're going to yep. be out of steam. You run, run out of steam on turn two or turn three, yeah. and you're not playing for the late game, are you? Exactly, and your army's going to fall apart. There's definitely a balance to find there. Do you think three three battalions is the way to go for White Scars? Or do you think I you think can- I'm going to move down to two and a spearhead, just because the Space Marine Heavy Supports and HQs are where the power is, right? You've got Whirlwind, Thunderfire Cannons, Eliminators, and then HQs, you've just so many things um so i think i think two and a two and a detachment is the sweet spot but i always like when i start with a new army i try to maximize the amount of cp i can get so triple battalion for this when i started playing gene circles it was brigade double battalion just because you can do the stuff that you wouldn't normally be able to do so you can kind of crotch on them a little bit so i shouldn't necessarily need to use transhuman five times in a game and i'm probably not playing it right if i do but if i can they can dig out the hole yeah, while I'm still so getting you, used you, to it. You actually decided, because you're new to an army, this is a really interesting teaching point. Because you're new to the army, you want to give yourself that, that security blanket of I can mismanage my CPs, but I still have enough to get my army done. And you actually took us, we'll put it in your quotes, worse army just to uh, accommodate that, that noobness. Yeah, exactly. So I don't necessarily need to triple fight with uh, Space Marines, but if I can, it's going to help my game plan a lot, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so. I found the same thing. When I first started playing Gene Steeler Cole, this is a very common thing, and it works same thing for me, uh, I would blow through my 18 CP in the first few turns. And now that I've gotten better and better and better, um, except in Hurricane is, I would often find myself with <laughs> CP going into turn six. Yeah, and that's where you get to do all the janky stuff, isn't it? So. Yeah, so like if I, if I could give a new player's perspective on this, it's like training wheels, right? So... You're not going to be very efficient because you don't know necessarily the optimal time to use your CPs when you're learning an army. So if you have 18 of them, you can make uh, even small mistakes in the usage of them, waste some here and there, and still have enough for the big moments in the game when you really need them. So in a way, you're learning, you're learning on the job. You're learning um, an efficient way to use your CPs, but you have enough that where you can actually accelerate that learning because you're going to be in more situations where you need them. Yeah, so you you get to find the times where a strategy will bail you out, and you get to save it for next time. So you don't you don't spend time on the the pointless CP rerolls or the oh I'll just get the extra damage that you didn't really need to do, but it feels really good to get it in the moment, and then you save them for the big moments. So you'll find Gene Circle players now. When I first started with Gene Circle, it was like Vect every time. Like I will use Vect every game, and then by the end you're like probably don't need Vect here. I don't need it this game, and that that's the same thing with Space Marines. Like 
you don't need to have double fight to kill. You don't need to kill two knights in a turn with one smash captain. Killing one's probably enough uh, with the one guy. So you save it and you kill him next turn, right? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. The thing that's that's really making my head kind of spin a little bit is um, using more CPs actually accelerates your learning on when to use them more effectively. So it's a way of like shortcutting your practice. Uh, that's actually an amazing point you just made there, John. Um, when you're when people, myself included, try to design armies in the first place, I'll start from what I think a top 20 list will be, and then I'll tweak it as I go and as I learn stuff. But if that is like a type of army that's like double battalion and a spearhead, like Anna said, I may find myself not having enough CPs because I don't know how to manage them in the beginning phases. Whereas if I just had the CPs, I would learn it a lot faster because I would know what strategies are worth using and not because I was able to try it. It's a great point. Yeah, it's really smart. Well, that's actually pretty cool. Sorry, yeah. Um, I had a I had a question. I lost my train of thought, though. Um, it was totally off topic, but it came back to me. Just how often? And I don't. I want to cover like what specific relics and warlord traits space wins have a thousand in the Magic Combo in Part Two. But how often did you take Master of Snares, and how awesome was Master of Snares? So I actually only took it once because I was just never playing armies that I felt like I. Um, but I did take it in my first game against Eldar Flyers, and I, I noticed an opportunity. Uh, I say Eldar Flyers, the guy had three and some Ravagers and some Knights Winners. But I, I noticed an opportunity where he had parked two planes like just with enough space for a Smash Captain base to get between them and tag both. And I, I think I moved him 35 inches that turn to get in between them and kill both. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there with a, a knowledge bomb and say that uh, you can't auto-destroy Elder Flyers. That's you can in LGT back. Oh, it's before that happened? <laughs> yeah, okay. it's before the era. So for those of you not uh, following the conversation, Master of Snares is a warlord trait for White Scars. Uh, basically, if an enemy tries to fall back on a 4+, which you get to roll, so you can use, you can use your CP re-roll it, to re-roll it. Um, if, you, if you roll the 4 up, um, the enemy just can't fall back. This is amazing for, obviously, a million reasons, because we talk about the importance of trapping pretty much every episode. And in this, it allows you to trap units with the fly keyboard, which would normally be untrappable. Um, there was an FAQ that just released for Space Marines that says if a model has a minimum movement distance, such as a flyer, you can't actually use this Warlord trait on it. So prior to the FAQ, you could tag an Eldar flyer. It would auto-destroy because it has to move, but it can't move um, at GW FAQ that way. But apparently at LGT, you didn't have that rule. Yeah, because the so the FAQs were in place, so anything that was a clarification, because that was a straight up errata, and people had built their I'm going to say in air quotes built their lists around it. It was just broken. Uh, I built my list around the Fox Spiritum FAQ with the plus range range on the Phobos Captain. So yeah, I've, I gather that was in. But the Master Snares FAQ was technically an errata, which meant it wasn't in play for the event. So I did get that. And I think I tagged a Wave Serpent as well, but that got away, so my guy died. So both the, the Vox Spiritum, that's a plus three-inch aura on your aura ability. So obviously nine inches of right to battle, it's neat, but whatever. And the real reason you took it is a 15-inch aura of no deep strike. Is that that much more significant than just a 12-inch normal aura? So I think I did the math on it 
and it increases the aura range by like 40%. The by himself with the plus three inch range, he covers almost 30% of the board for, for 99 crazy. points. I definitely felt it. I definitely felt a big difference as the Gene Seer Cult been playing a 12 inch aura, which I played around a lot with infiltrators and whatnot, or even just the internet intercept strategy that a lot of our armies have. The 15 versus the 12 was a big difference. I felt it. Yeah. So think about it for GSC. If you roll, if you try to perfect ambush on a 15 inch aura, you've got to roll just to be able to declare a charge, let alone have a good odds of making it. Yeah. Versus 12 on a one you're able to declare, right? So yeah, it does make a big difference. It's also for things like um, the aura of protection. So you can make it so that if any unit that's within three of him is also unchargeable out of reserve for orcs, say, because they're not they're now also not within nine. So you could do I could do things like bubble the six aggressors around him with so that no aggressor was more than three inches away from him at any point. So that no units from Deep Strike could ever could rapid fire them for Death Watch or charge them for orcs, and it's just that additional bit of protection. Right. Unfortunately, none of this matters anymore because it's been eroded. Yeah, out of the none game. of this is legal anymore. Yeah. So I'm yeah. really sorry to anybody who was digging out their Phobos captain from their shadows. <laughs> so what's your? This is obviously an integral part of your strategy in Spartan matchups. Um, what's your plan for moving forward with those? Moving forward with the with dealing um, dealing with not having a Phobos for captain. So. I'm probably going to have to add in infiltrators. That, that's just the way it's looking. Um, unless I, I'm planning on playing a couple of games, trying to get some people to play against me without using them, and seeing if I can manage them anyway. Uh, and then if I find that I can't, some of the some of the intercessors will just have to become a, inter, inter, infiltrators. There we go. Too many ins in the. Uh, <laughs> Why did they name everything the same? Infiltrator. Yeah, incursors, infiltrators, intercessors. <laughs> just too many I and yeah. troop units. Yeah, and as somebody whose name starts with I N, it's very. T- <laughs> I get confused very easily. I'm sure it's just an in joke at GW. <laughs> I, I'm. I can't let that pass. I'm. So- that was horrible. That was a dad joke. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm far too far too young for dad jokes. I'm so glad I missed that. I'm not. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think. I'm trying to think um, if there's anything else we need to cover as far as the strategy goes of your list. Is there anything that you want to bring up? Were there other things that you considered putting in your list? Yeah, I guess that's what I really want to ask. What other units, because we've only had Space Marines for maybe two weeks now, three weeks. You've obviously not had time to get 100 test games and then refine your list to make sure this is the best version. No, I, I think I got 10. Um, still better than most. but Still a lot like, of games, What, what yeah. are units you want to try or... Did try and can cut like what's your thought process? So there? I start the list that started off with was a brigade version that was running attack bikes and Invictor warsuits, um, but I just found that the Invictor warsuits were it's the whole it's the whole turn one thing, right? They they didn't have they were great if you went first, but they didn't have any play if you went second. They just tended to die, uh, or you tended to deploy them really far back and not get any use out of them. So that was kind of why I went towards more of the scouts advanced deploy. They kind of showed me that. Okay, white scars can really leverage the first turn with advanced deploy stuff. It's just not this advanced deploy stuff. Uh, and then attack bikes were just they fell away with once the brigade went away. And then when you say attack bikes, you mean like three solo attack bike type of things? Yeah, three solo attack bikes to fill a brigade. They were useful. The being able to advance and charge, I think fourteen plus d six, and then charge in as well. And then having seven shots just in tactical and heavy doctrine were really useful. They helped sort of get me to it. But they gave up butcher's bill really easily, which was not great. And they just, 
I didn't feel the need for the brigade. Uh, 16 TPs didn't feel like enough when I was getting used to it because it was spearhead brigade. I've actually looked at uh, units of three attack bikes just in white scars because they can move and shoot no penalty, obviously, advance and charge, as you said. And they I don't want to buy nine attack bikes. <laughs> okay. Assuming I don't want to buy nine attack bikes. Assuming none of that's a real factor. <laughs> Do you think there's real merits to that or not? Um, I think it would be interesting. I think it would be a very different style list of mine. Um, the attack bikes are... The squads of three, you're basically forcing away any light arms fire from being useful to them. They're kicking out 21 shots. They're charging in with, what, three attacks per bike? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's merit there. They're just, it's a different play style, right? Okay. And I'm also looking at the fact that that's, they're 37 points, which is the same points as an aggressor. Uh, I'd rather just run six aggressors. That's that's totally fair. Like, non-attack bikes could just be nine aggressors. And obviously, very different units with very different styles of usage, but... um. You know, opportunity cost is a very much a thing in this game. I was just picking your brain on that because it's something I've considered. The last unit that I really want to try is Company Champions um, because they're 47-point characters that get Heroic Intervention, which is, uh, I think they get Heroic Intervention six, six inches against characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so they're really great for just backfield objective holding, but also they are real to hit and win against characters and damage three in Assault Doctrine, um, which is just surprisingly killer for a little cheap 47 point character with an invulnerable save um but i just never found i never find the points for them um but they're definitely a unit how many attacks i think i think they're three base plus one for charging but it might be four i will have a quick check in the codex now yeah that's quite good actually no they're really good i've been i've actually been thinking about company champions i just never can see they're just the, the first thing to get caught aren't they yeah it's that's exactly what it is and a lot of those really cool units like nine man attack or three man attack likes your list turns out to be 2,200 points. And how do you trim... Four, four attacks. Yep, four attacks. And plus one of the charge. And then they always fight They always fight as if they charge, and they reel to hit and win against characters. And they have a six-inch heroic intervention. That's like kind of a pretty big no-fly zone. Like, that's... Yeah, it's only six-inch against characters, I believe. Three inches normally. Okay. But against, like, knights or characters most of the time. Yeah. That's interesting. Interesting. But you never you never considered Assault Centurions? I know that's one of the units that everyone is thinking about the White Scars. <laughs> so Assault uh, that's actually kind of kind of it's been a big meme in one of our group chats. Uh, every time a new rule came out for Space Marines, we were like, how can we apply this to Assault Centurions? Um, I actually already owned nine before the codex came out. <laughs> so this is right up your alley uh, already. Yeah, uh, Assault Centurions. I won, won my first tournament with Assault Centurions in seventh, uh, buffing them with Azrael of all things. Um, but no, they were just, I looked at them and then I looked at aggressors and I kind of ran the numbers and I was like, I don't need them for the combat output. I need them for the shooting output. The combat output is nice, but it's not that, but the shooting output on aggressors is just that much better. That I would rather have the, the aggressors. Interesting. Cause to me, it's not that different. It's 12 shots versus six plus D six. Uh, assuming you're not going to fire twice aspect. So you're just getting more value from the shooting out of Assault Centurions in most cases, because it's it's rare that you get to start and not move. It, so it fe- it's because the assault the aggressors natively advance and charge. So I often found that because if you've only got a 23-inch threat range, or um, what is it on Assault Centurions, uh, it'll be 28-inch yeah. threat range for... Yeah, whereas the aggressors can do can do the advantage charge, but they get into combat as well much quicker than aggress- than the assault centurions do. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of worried that if I outflank the the assault centurions, they're more liable to get their. I feel I would always feel like I was going to have to outflank them if I wanted to get the combat use out of them, because a lot of the bonus benefit of them was getting them into combat and wrapping them. 
Uh, whereas aggressors had the whole thing where they could start on the board and get into combat as well. So that was kind of where my head was at. They're also cheaper, which I like. Well, you, yeah, you don't think that regular aggressors can, or sorry, since assault centurions can start on the board and get into combat like that? I think you can, but because they're movement four and you're not advancing and shooting them without a stratagem, uh, and if you are advancing and shooting them with a the stratagem, they're half their firepower because it makes their rapid fire weapons into assault weapons. Right. Uh, so you're having to spend CP on them to get them into combat and they're not getting as much shooting output when they do it. So it's like, yeah, if I'm always outflanking them, the Centurions will probably do more for more for more points. If I'm starting them on the board, which I was going to be doing against things like demons, the I felt like the aggressors were more likely to do the combat damage. Actually, here's what I here's what I've learned in my test games. Um, I run assault centurions without hurricane bolters, so that they act like aggressors, and that their flamers are plenty. Like I know that that's ten inches less range, so they have, you know, they project not as well, but. They're only 42 points a model versus, what, 37 for an aggressor. And for that extra point, you get plus one to your save. You're much more effective in combat. And you get uh, you lose one inch of movement. Um, but you also get the flamers. So like, I feel like for an extra five points a model and, and an extra wound, like it's pretty good value. Yeah, so, so, so truths are definitely something I would have to have a look at. The other thing with them is primarily they do get access to gene rot might, which is really nice. Uh, which is the auto winning on sixes to hit? Do do aggressors not? Uh, no, uh, centurions don't because it's primaris models only. Oh, you learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, which is why smash captains can't do it, which would be hilarious. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh, and gene rot might for one CP is a very useful strategy for bypassing wound rolls on things like knights. I imagine it's really good on your ten man unit of intercessors, right? Like they really start doing work then. I've only got um, four or five man units oh, of. Why did I think you had a ten man? That's weird. Yeah, he's just next most recent list does. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So uh, I guess last question I have for you is: um, Why do your whirlwinds have? Why why, do you, why the ratio of one thunderfire to two whirlwinds? Why not like three thunderfires, three whirlwinds, or something like that? Or like, and also why the. The, I forget, the Vengeance Missiles, I think it vengeance is. Vengeance yeah. yeah. Okay. So the thinking with the Whirlwinds was that um, auto cannons are really good. Let's just get some that ignore on a site. Uh, auto cannons have been good for all of 40k, right? We were, we were running auto cannons in 5th edition, and we'll be running them in 10th. Um, they just have such a diverse damage profile. There's nothing in the game that they're not at least okay at. If you're firing them at knights, you're getting two damage for every wound through. You're firing them at planes, you're getting two damage, and you're winning them on threes. With chapter master rerolls, they're not actually terrible at shooting planes, and then they clear mortars super well. Um, so that was kind of the thing with them was they're there for the one or two turn worth of shooting. I will say they were probably the weakest part of the list. Uh, I wish I had maybe left one of them and dropped the other one for a thunderfire cannon or another unit or, or another unit of intercessors. But they did a roll. Um, they were good at killing primaris marines when I didn't roll like utter trash with them um 43 shots it's fairly consistent across two of them uh the sat, sat next to rerolls well and just the ability for whirlwinds to have like the um the 12 inch movement for late game grabbing objectives was really nice as well which a thunderfire cannon doesn't do yeah the the, the maneuverability of whirlwind i really like i was just curious why i guess whirlwinds over vengeance over castle in there um like you said auto cans is an amazing profile but 2d3 versus 2d6 it's because my army's not lacking any infantry, right? I've got the 35, 35 boater dudes across my troops and then the aggressors as well and the Thunderfire Cannons anti-infantry based. 
So just having that little bit of range damage too, because otherwise I'm relying purely on combat to do two damage. I just wanted something to be able to reach out and touch things like mortars. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So that was the thing with it. Whether it was right or not is probably debatable, and they're coming out of the list. Uh, one's been dropped from my team event next weekend, and the second one is probably not going to be on my list anymore. Interesting. Um, but they were they did fill a role. What are you putting in for them? What are you saying, John? What are you... I was just asking what he's putting in for the whirlwinds, or how are, how are you changing the list? I guess that's a better question. So for my team event next week, I'm actually testing out the chaplain Dreadnought because I didn't get a chance to play with him before he got the FAQ, and it obviously wasn't in play for LGT. So I wanted to have a go with him because he just looks like fun. Uh, so I dropped out one of the whirlwinds and one of the chaplains to upgrade one, the chaplain to him, um, which I just thought was you know, felt felt right in the moment. Uh, and then for events past that, I think the whirlwinds will come out to upgrade to pay for upgrading scout squads to um, infiltrators, and then probably more thunderfire cannons because those things are incredible. Very cool. So yeah, um, unless you guys think there's anything else we need to cover, I think we've covered a lot in this one. No, it's been a pleasure. It's a it's a really a really interesting list. It, it's uh, not a direction I had even considered. Not that I'm a big list building savant or anything but uh, i never like in all the lists I've, I've built like one triple battalion marine list and i hated it so much i was like okay this just doesn't work you just don't have points to do it uh but it's kind of nice to see the success that you had with it and then in thinking about the list there's actually a lot of really smart things going on with it that are not obvious at first blush so it's a really good conversation and that right there is the first and only time Inez will be called smart in his life. I mean, I'm still not entirely convinced he said I was smart. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, Nick, if I'm not smart, what does that make you? No, I've never claimed to be smart. So, <laughs> Hey, you guys played at LGT. What happened in that game? Inez, visit, uh, uh, visit Hellstorm Wargaming on YouTube to find out. Yeah, visit Hellstorm Wargaming. Um, basically, Inez <laughs> put my brain in a pretzel and then I rolled really bad and didn't untie myself. <laughs> uh, I thought we, we don't blame dice at nights at the game table. Probably. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. I just didn't understand the match. That was entirely on me. Not great, but check it out. It was actually a very well played game um, on both sides. It was just, uh, it was definitely the most unique game I played all tournament. Definitely check it out. Yeah, definitely the most unique game I played all tournament, mostly because Neil was absolutely pissed drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, guys, thanks for listening. This has been the Art of War 40K podcast with me, John Tamaris, and Inez Wilson. Um, if you liked it, check us out on Patreon and like us and become a patron, I guess. Um, then you can access part two where we talk about the White Scars list and how it handles different matchups and um, different deployments and all that jazz. And also, you know, Space Marines have 4 billion relics, warlord traits, psychic powers, etc. Let's figure out what Winez takes in different matches. So join us for that part two by becoming a patron. Thanks for tuning in. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook.
Just look for AOW 40K. AOW 40K. AOW 40K. Till next time.